1: com slash sacredtext today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, Chapter 20, The Dementor's Kiss. Harry had never been part of a stranger group. Crookshanks led the way down the stairs. Lupin, Pettigrew, and Ron went next, looking like entrants in a six-legged race. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
2: And I'm Matt Potts.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Well, everybody, we're doing Cracker Jack journalism for our every flavored bean today. We are going to investigate what happy memories we would summon for our patronuses. So if you sign up for our Patreon, you'll get to hear that and many other amazing things. You can go to patreon.com/slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. And if you are not subscribed to our Patreon, guess what? We still think you're swell. Matt, you have a story for us on the theme of confidence.
2: I do. What story do you have? This story is not a story I remember to conjure my patronus. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, last fall in November, I was officially installed as the minister at Harvard. There was a big ceremony.
1: I was there.
2: And Vanessa, you were there. As was your family and as were, you know, like 300 other people, including the president of the university and my bishop and lots of other folks and friends from various stages of my past and family that came out from Michigan for it. It was a great event. Yeah, and I was very excited about it there's a whole formal kind of ceremony that goes along with a person being installed in my tradition as the minister of a particular church. And one of the things that's required is that the person being installed has to, to say a long prayer. Kneeling in the middle of the congregation, the person says a long prayer. And I am pretty good at memorizing stuff. I have a pretty good memory, and I wanted to memorize this prayer. And it's, it's a little bit longer than, but the flow of it is kind of like wedding vows, right? And, you know, when I got married, Colette and I memorized our wedding vows. And so I was like, I can do this. This is fine. I have a good memory. I'll do it. And so I, I learned it, and I learned it pretty quickly. And I would kind of run through it in my head in the, you know, week leading up to this ceremony. And so my family noticed that I was kind of mumbling under my breath sometimes. And, you know, Cammy one time was like, well, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, there's this prayer I have to say, and I'm going to say it. And she said, let me hear it. And I, off the top of my head, just rattled it off to her. And she said. You're never going to do that. You're going to forget when it's time for you to say the prayer. And I was like, what? What is, where is this lack of confidence? Like this lack of faith in your in your father? Of course I'll remember it. I have a good memory. I can remember things. I do this stuff all the time. I mean, a lot of what, in my tradition, a lot of the prayers are, are rote. And so I just, I pray that stuff all the time. I was like, this will be no problem. I'll do it. What are you talking about? She's like, there's no way. You are going to, you're going to forget. <laughs> and I was like, be prepared to be proven wrong. Uh, And I will child. Yes, I expect an elaborate apology in the moments after the service when you see that I easily remember this easy thing and I don't even notice that you're apologizing because it was such a nothing to me. I was very confident, (laughs) very, very confident. So the ceremony comes. It's a beautiful ceremony. There's all this, well, ceremonial stuff going on. And then about two-thirds of the way through the service, it comes to this part where, like, I have to walk into the middle of congregation and kneel and start praying. And I get one line in, and then the whole thing flies out of my head. <laughs> and, I, and I sat there, I actually knelt there, in silence for, like, 10 seconds. And I was like, oh, crap, what do I do now? Because I was so confident I did not bring a copy of the prayer with me. So I was like, what do I do now? Because I, it's not printed anywhere. I can't. I can't grab the bulletin of a— person in the pew next to me and start reading it. And so I just started making stuff up (laughs) and just started started saying stuff to God about things that I would like (laughs) to happen (laughs) and just took a couple deep breaths. And so I stood up and walked to the front of the congregation with, you know, Cammie just looking at me and smiling. So this is a story of confidence, maybe of mis- (laughs) Of misplaced confidence, but thats I think that's maybe part of the reason I wanted to bring it up, that confidence is about one's experience of oneself, not about the world as it actually is, (laughs) right? Like, I was very confident. I felt very sure that I knew or that I would recall this prayer. I didn't really have any anxiety about it beforehand. I felt like I knew it cold, but obviously I didn't, obviously, or something else happened in the world that made me lose it. Yeah. And so I thought this is why I want to talk about confidence, because I felt so utterly confident and because that confidence was challenged by Cammy beforehand. And the confidence actually didn't do much for me in the moment because I actually did not have the prayer in my head at the time when I needed it.
1: Matt, do you, not blaming Cammy, of course, but do you think that if Cammy hadn't sort of inserted that doubt into your head that you would have been able to conjure this prayer?
2: Good question. No, I think that, I think that because honestly, I was so confident. Maybe it's unconscious, but I did not experience it as a placing of doubt in my head. I experienced it. I relished it. I was so mm-hmm. glad that she was questioning me.
1: challenge because so
2: I was good. I was so looking forward to just talking trash to her afterwards. Like I really had no doubt. Yeah. I really had no I did or at least I had no experience of conscious doubt. Maybe, maybe, as you suggest, Vanessa, maybe it planted some <laughs> doubt in my mind. and And that's what caused me to forget in the moment. But I don't know. I think it was just one of those things. I just think that you never, are. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. you never really know for sure what's going to happen, right? Like, you totally. know, yeah. it's
1: just sometimes, right? Like, sometimes entering the possibility of failure yeah. can actually get us to start tripping over ourselves. And absolutely, sometimes it's nothing or yeah. it's actually a challenge that buoys us to do better, right?
2: Yeah, right. I mean, if anything, I think I practiced more because she said that. But you're right. It might have been the the thought of forgetting, because, you know, I don't know if anyone else, probably among our listenership, we have people who have forgotten lines before or whatever, right, in a performance. For me, anyway, there was something about realizing I'd forgotten that just froze me, right? Like, right. I think the difference is, you know, when I was practicing by myself, if I stumbled on a word, I'd just be like, I take a moment and then, okay, I know that word, right? But in this, yeah. because the word flew out of my head, I could not gather myself, compose myself to get myself back into the prayer and just say it.
1: Yeah. Well, Matt, before we move on to the 30-second recap, I just want to say as a person sitting in the pews, I genuinely thought what you were doing was having a moment of grace and communion with God and that you were like trying to figure out the right things to say and that then you did and what you said was beautiful. So... I mean, mind you, maybe there are Episcopalians in that room that like knew what you were supposed to say. But as the atheist Jew in the room, my family and I looked at each other and we were like, gosh, that was a really beautiful part. Isn't that so great? So just so you know, that's how we experienced it.
2: Good. I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that you experienced it as that. And I think that overall, the service was very good. I mean, it was hard for me just because of, of my own psychology not to dwell upon this moment of. What I understood as failure in in the service. I know, but that's also it's also good for me to just kind of let go of. I'm gonna mess up some stuff, and that's okay. Okay, can I count you in for a thirty second recap? Please. Three, two, one, go.
1: So they're all leaving the Shrieking Shack, and Crookshanks leads the way so that the Whomping Willow isn't going to smack them on the way out, and chaos ensues. The moon comes, and Lupin turns into a werewolf, and Sirius has to um, fight him off of Ron, and um, Peter Pettigrew turns into scabbers, and he runs away. And Harry and Hermione are like, oh no, what do we do? And then it sounds like a dog is shrieking, and then it turns out that it's um, Sirius that's shrieking, and the Dementors are about to kiss him, and Harry and Hermione are trying and cast a Patronus. And then a light comes. Excellent. It's so chaotic.
2: It's a chaotic chapter. They, uh, You know, a, a lot has fit into that, these seven pages.
1: Matt, are you ready to do an awesome 30-second recap?
2: I'm ready to try. How about that?
1: Okay. That's all that matters. On your mark, get set. Go.
2: So they're leaving the, leaving the Shrieking Shack and they're in the tunnel and, and Snape keeps bumping his head against the... They're not being very nice to Snape. Uh, and But he wasn't very nice to them. They come out and... Or maybe they're not out <laughs> yet and Sirius is like, come live with me. And Harry's like, I barely know you. Okay. And then the moon comes and then, oh no, Ron's attached to, to Lupin and there's a werewolf and Snape, Sirius turns into a dog and I can't see the timer. And then they start fighting and they get away but they get away and the and then the, 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 the uh, Dementors come and Harry tries to cast a Patronus but he can't.
1: I'm sorry about the timer.
2: That's okay. I'm so at ease with 30-second with recaps now. I just worked it in.
1: And you're just like, whatever. I've got time to spare. That's right.
2: Because we're a team and you hit so many of the high points, you made my job easy.
1: I mean, should we start with Harry being like, cool, I'll move in with you, someone I thought was a murderer an hour ago? Yeah, that was kind of weird. I mean, I think it's his confidence that just about anywhere would be better than the Dursleys. Yeah. And he's like fairly confident.
2: Less to do with how good Sirius is or may be and more to do with just how terrible <laughs> the right. Dursleys are.
1: And I do think Sirius walks Harry through it a little bit, right? Yeah. They're, as you said, they're like walking down the stairs and Sirius is like, I don't know if you know, but I was your godfather. And Harry's like, yeah, I did know. And then he was like, I'm also your guardian. And Harry was like, oh, no one ever told me that. And so like, it it's... Sort of percolating in Harry's head for a good fifteen to twenty seconds
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: before he like jumps on it, and so I right like there's also confidence in like most likely my parents wouldn't pick a total jerk. Do you think that's part of it?
2: I think that's part of it. I think it's a it's a quick transition for him for him to make. I know they've gotten a lot of new information. I think you're right. I think it speaks to how unhappy he is at the Dursleys and how much he doesn't want to go back. To me, I think there are, the other aspect of the confidence here is that he's immediately utterly confident that his life would be better with Sirius. Maybe not yeah. utterly confident that Sirius is a great guardian, but just that it would be better. And maybe that's a reasonable confidence for them yeah. to have. But the other thing is that he also is utterly confident that it's going to work out. Right, you can just tell he's like already in his head, like, "Oh, I'm going to live with him. This is happening." Yeah, like he has already he has already concluded that f- the future will turn out the way he wants it to turn out. Even though, I mean, the rest of the Wizarding World, plus all the Dementors that stand between the Whomping Willow and Hogwarts, still want to kill Sirius, right? Like, like there's just a lot of—there's there's more uncertainty here. It's a great hope for him to have, maybe, but it's not like they have a really solid plan and making this happen. But in his head, Harry is already there. And when, at the end of the chapter, when, when they are at risk and the Dementors are coming towards them— one of the things he's letting go of is he's like, oh, I was sure I was going to move in with him. I was sure that I was leaving Privet Drive, right? That confidence seems seems the other half of his confidence. Like, he's very sure that it would be better with Black than with the Dursleys. And he's so sure of that that he's sure it should happen or it will happen, which is the other kind of half of the confidence, right? I, yeah.
1: Yeah. I—just I, to add to the other reasons he shouldn't be confident, and maybe he doesn't know this, but— Dumbledore won't let this happen. The protection over Harry is tied to this, like, blood bond between Harry and Petunia, which, you know, isn't ideal that it has to be biological family. And so even Dumbledore, who would want this for Harry, would most likely stop this from happening.
2: That's right.
1: And this is something I think about a lot in terms of sometimes I will have what I experience is a premonition, right? I'm like, I am so sure that this thing will happen. I'm so sure that the kids while climbing a tree are gonna fall and hit their chin and like split their chin. I I can like visualize it. And then I'm like, oh, there's a difference between a premonition and a fear, right? Yeah. Like they've never fallen out of the tree. And Only on my deathbed will I know for sure that that was not a premonition, but a fear. But I'm pretty sure that this is just a concern that I have. And the same seems true about confidence, right? Like, when are you sure and when are you just so hopeful and full of faith that it feels like confidence?
2: Yeah. Like, it makes you misjudge what else is going on in the world. Because, I mean, just to go back to my story, right— the reason I was so confident is because I knew I could memorize a 90-second prayer. Right. And in fact, I did it and said it right in front of Cammy, right? And the, the knowledge of that made me misjudge what other things might be going on in the moment that might compromise the situation, right? And so the fact that he can move in with Sirius is something he wants so bad that he, f- he forgets to, f- to factor in what else beyond his control or Sirius's control might compromise the possibility of that. He becomes—the one confidence f- feeds into the other confidence— so to to take a quick visit to etymology corner. Oh,
1: I love it here. Yeah, it's, a, <gasps> it's so sunny here today.
2: <laughs> it's it's beautiful in etymology corner. It
1: really is.
2: The word confidence comes from the the Latin word fidere, which means to have faith in something or to be to have fidelity to it. Right, to be faithful or to trust in it. And then the con part. is Sometimes it's used with like. To accompany something or to be with it, right? Like a uh, confluence is when two things come together, right? But but it can also con
1: in be, Spanish.
2: That's right. Con in Spanish was with, right? But it can also be used as like in the sense of addition, right? Like it's an emphasis, right? And so this is like confidence is like faith plus, trust plus. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe this is the plus part, right? Like, okay, I know that this is possible and I want it, so I believe it will happen. Even though there's a lot of other stuff that I'm ignoring that I can't control, that seems like what's going on here with—I'm certainly what went on with me when I was trying to remember this prayer. But uh, it seems like it's going on with with Harry too, because as soon as he hears this news, he wants it so bad that he's willing to believe both that that it's the best thing and the right thing. He's probably right to believe it's better, but right like he he's already fantasizing about how good his life would be with Sirius, and then that leads him to discount all the other things, as you said, the fact that. Dumbledore might have other reasons for him living with the Dursleys. The fact that Sirius is still a wanted person and that this is a difficult plan to, for them to pull off. His innocence hasn't been proven. All this other stuff just flies out of his head because the thing he does believe or wants to believe is so clear. And I think you're right, too. It works in the, in the reverse with fears. The fears emotionally can overwhelm us so that we don't think about their likelihood. Also, and don't, don't adequately or accurately assess risks.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering what you think your quote unquote mistake was. Was it that you didn't have a copy of the prayer in your pocket just in case?
2: Yeah, I think I think that was my overconfidence. I think there was a little bit of pridefulness in it too, right? Like I think that hmm. if I was confident but not prideful, I might have walked out and said the prayer with my eyes closed, but the book in front of me. But I mm-hmm. I wanted to be a person that memorized it, right? And maybe it's not just pridefulness too. I just for the same reason I memorized my wedding vows, I didn't want to speak them back to someone who said them to me. I wanted to feel like I was feeling them, right? Yeah. As I read them. But you know, what happened when I did it is I was not feeling what I was saying. I was just like, crap, what do I say next? And I also had this distance (laughs) between myself and my words, right? I mean, I think the flaw was overconfidence. I think I didn't, I didn't carry the words with me. I didn't have access to them in case things went wrong. I was so sure I didn't have a backup plan. Because honestly, if i had had the backup plan, I probably would have panicked less when the next sentence flooded my head and I've been able to keep going, right?
1: Totally. It's interesting, right? Because a few years ago, I mean, more than a few years ago now, probably 10, 15 years ago, this idea of the secret was, Mm -hmm. you know, around this Oprah propagated idea that essentially that if you're confident in something, you can make it happen. And I think that the concern around it was that people were doing things like, I'm confident I'm going to wake up tomorrow speaking Spanish. And it's like, (laughs) no, that's not how that works, right? But we do need confidence sometimes, even in difficult circumstances, right? I don't think that it hurts Harry to believe with all of his heart that he's going to move in with Sirius. I think it emotionally hurts him in a little bit when he isn't able to. But I think that it gets him to at least like have something positive to think about when he's yeah. trying to cast a Patronus. And I think it causes an emotional connection between the two of them that Sirius even asks him that, you know, we'll get Harry to fly Buckbeak up in the next couple of chapters to rescue Sirius. I, yeah. I think even when our confidence is disappointed, it's sometimes a good thing yeah. that we had it. And I wonder if that's true for you, too, Matt. You know, if you were counting on reading that prayer the whole time, you wouldn't have been walking around the house essentially chanting it to yourself for weeks before yeah. and like really thinking about what those words meant. And so regardless of whether or not you were able to say them in front of everybody, like you were walking around saying them more than most priests say before they get installed
2: yeah, that's a that's that's a great spin on it, Vanessa. I like that. <laughs> It's true like I really sat with the prayer. I really I mean there were lots of days when I was paying attention to it. I mean one of the things I was thinking about and your question and your your nice version of my story makes me ask I mean it's possible that the examples we've been given or we've been discussing so far are overconfidence, right? Like right. what's the distinction between confidence and overconfidence because I think that we in general we tend to think about overconfidence as a flaw, right? Or as, as humorous, right? Like misplaced confidence. Like I feel like Will Ferrell has made a career out of playing Playing characters who have misplaced overconfidence, (laughs) right? Like, that's what's so funny about them is that they think they're great at things that they're bad at, right? Like, that's. that's, And
1: yet end up winning. And yet end up winning,
2: right? And something about their belief, something about their belief, right, is what does it like? And you're right. It's like endearing. It's endearing, yeah. And the confidence is part. I think we don't want to skip ahead into future chapters, but you're right. Something we see at the end of this chapter is that. Whatever wisp Harry gets out of his wand as the dementors are coming comes from what little belief he can hold on to that this still can be true, that he still can go with serious and still can have the future he wants. It's not sufficient. If he was more confident in it, he probably could conjure a, a more powerful Patronus. Yeah. So where's that line? That's a, this is my question for you. Now. So where's the line between confidence and overconfidence and part B of the question <laughs> What yeah. Where do we sit? What examples do we have in the chapter to help us discern that?
1: Yeah. I mean, and I just wanna before I try to answer your question, I wanna defend one more time the importance of Harry just jumping to this conclusion. Cause I think if he had echoed back to serious cautious optimism, yeah the emotional connection wouldn't have been as strong, yeah. right? So Harry's like, yes, I want to move in with you. And then Sirius's smile is so big yeah. that it, right, like, reverse ages him 10 years. Yeah. And because of that, Harry sees the the guy who was in the wedding picture. And because of that, right, like, it just has this, like, virtuous cycle. Yeah. That I really do think leads to this connection that later saves them both. Whereas if what Harry had said to Sirius is like, yeah, if if Dumbledore can make it happen That's and right. maybe I'll do a walkthrough of the house and if it like has carbon monoxide detectors, like we'll see. Right. Then Sirius would have been like, Oh, okay. You know, it it just yeah. like wouldn't have had that like emotional. Resonance,
2: And you can see that before in the way that Sirius asked the question, right? He's not super confident that Harry will want it. Right. Yeah, and I think you're right. There is something really important in the confidence of Harry's response that lends assurance to Sirius. I think that's absolutely right.
1: And I especially think that the confidence of children demands that adults try to rise to meet it. And so, like, I especially think that the confidence of children is really important. Just last week, Ellen was graduating from middle school, and I told her I was so careful. I was so careful. I was like, I am going to try to come, but I cannot promise that work will let me come. It was at Mm -hmm. 8.15 in the morning. And I kept saying, I'm going to try, but I don't know. I don't know. And the night before, I texted her, and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it off. And she was like, really? And her disappointment, I was like, I got to pull it off, right? Like, I got to reschedule everything else in order to pull it off. She was just so sure that I was going to move mountains in order to come. And I, like, had to live up to that. I had to. And so, I don't know, sometimes I, I, like, I love this confidence of Harry. I guess I think that confidence, it, like, depends on your age and your power, so, for example, I think, right, I think a moment of confidence is when Harry turns to Hermione and is like, think of a happy thought, Hermione, and say, expecto patronum. Hermione has not had a single lesson. Yeah. This has not been covered in Defense Against yeah. the Dark Arts. This is where Hermione is apparently learning <laughs> how to, you know, how to cast a patronus, one of the most complicated spells in in wizardry, Right. And Harry just has such confidence in her that he's like, do this, right? And she can't do it. But again, one of the beautiful things I think about Patronuses is is that, like, even a wisp is helpful, right? Like, it doesn't need to be a fully corporeal Patronus in order for it to be a mild deterrent from Dementors. Mm. And so maybe Hermione doing that gives them the extra three seconds. Yeah that keeps Harry alive, you know? Yeah. And so I don't know, I'm sounding like a real sappy optimist. <laughs> when is confidence bad? It's bad that Lupin didn't have his wolfbane potion. Was that about overconfidence?
2: That seems like neglect or something, but I think overconfidence leads yeah, to yeah, neglect, yeah. right? I think that that's the situation for my story. I I because I was overconfident, I didn't take a couple of fairly simple precautions. That would have spared me some of the embarrassment and whatever, right? And I think, yeah, that's. I think maybe that's complacency is the companion of overconfidence. I think, right? And I think we do see that with with Lupin. I mean, that makes me wonder about the fact that Peter gets away, right? I mean, when they walk out of the shrieking shack, it seems like they've pretty much got Peter covered, right? Like they've got wands trained on him. They have him in his human form, they're pretty sure they're going to get out of there okay and be able to rectify the situation. I mean, Sirius and Lupin think so. But obviously, there was some overconfidence there because things did not go the way they wanted them to. And when things went badly, Peter was pretty quickly able to disarm those around him, change into a rat and scurry away.
1: Right. Yeah. And that was a confidence in numbers, right? There's enough of us to to have this covered, right. Yeah, and I also, like
2: I also wonder if it was an underestimation of Peter, right? Like they all mm-hmm. it seems like they underestimated him when he was a student, underestimated him when he was a friend
1: or overestimated,
2: yeah, oh yeah, overestimated his friendship or loyalty, but underestimated his capacity to to betray them. and also just I mean, clearly. They see him as weak, and he is weak in a certain sense, but he's also clearly a survivor in other ways, right? (laughs) Yeah. And he's willing to do what it takes to survive, like, you know, remove his own appendages. So to keep it in the theme of the chapter, maybe what I would say is they probably remain too confident in their power over him. Yeah. Which was the problem in the first place, right? They they believed that he would be ceaselessly loyal because he was kind of their lackey not realizing that he could be somebody else's lackey and totally loyal to that other at their expense hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news
0: Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimold Place. So you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, the other like version of confidence that's coming to mind is like a confidence man, right? Like a con mm. man. Oh, yeah. And that is someone who has so much confidence in themselves that they don't need the world to rise up to meet them, right? Yeah. They are going to be able to pretend that they have stacks of money, even though they don't. That is a reliance only on confidence. Yeah. And I wonder if that's part of what's going on with Peter, right? Is that he is confident that he is going to be able to turn into a rat in any number of ways at any given time and scurry out of a situation. Yeah.
2: I mean, it makes you think if confidence is contagious in a way, right? Because the, the confidence man behaves so confidently in his own kind of whatever, that, that they are who they say they are, that others become confident in it as well. And that's why they're able to pull off the trick, right? And mm-hmm. and I wonder if there is something about Peter exploiting others' sense of his weakness. Mm-hmm. Right? Like. They are so competent in his weakness that he plays the part so that when the opportunity arises, they do not expect him to be able to escape or take the sort of action that would allow him to to get what he wants, right? I mean, maybe you can see this in the last chapter when he's kind of groveling to each of the figures, kind of playing up on his weakness and helplessness in order to try to elicit some mercy from those who have the power to save him.
1: Yeah, because that's the other definition of con, right? It's with, but it's also like to deceive, right? To con yeah. someone is to trick them.
2: Yeah. Right.
1: It's interesting the levels at which when we have confidence, we are potentially tricking other people to believing in us more than they should. Yeah. I mean, I remember the very first day of teaching when I was, you know, 22 years old, and it felt like I was trying to con the students, all right? Like I was trying to fake confidence so that they would believe in me as their teacher. Yeah. And And it was. It was this, I think, what The Secret is actually right about, right? Like, is that it became this virtuous cycle. I behaved as confidently as I could muster. They, therefore, had more faith in me and, therefore, treated me with more respect, which made me feel like I was going to be a better teacher, blah, blah, blah. And so confidence can have this quality in which it actually changes the reality of the situation.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, when I was training to be a priest, in my tradition, there's all these kind of manual actions and rituals you have to go through. And I didn't really know what they were when I first started. And a couple of the priests who trained me just said, you know, don't worry about it. The people out there don't know either. So just look like you know what you're doing and you'll figure it out, right?
1: <laughs> hmm Matt, just one more thing before we wrap up this conversation. I know that a couple of weeks ago we spent some time critiquing the metaphor that J.K. Rowling has confirmed. of lupin's werewolfism as a metaphor for aids and i was just reminded in this chapter another component of what's so horrible about this metaphor is there's a moment in which the moon comes out and lupin literally transforms into a monster and becomes dangerous he becomes acutely viciously dangerous. And again, this is another thing that is really pernicious and awful about this metaphor. There is not a moment in which someone with AIDS becomes dangerous to the world. And So just another thing that I wanted to offer up about what is, in my opinion, really toxic about this metaphor.
2: Yeah, thank you, Vanessa. You know, you said something in last week's episode about the profane as no longer being open to mystery, to what other possibilities there are. I think one of the things that makes literature sacred is that these metaphors aren't closed, like they they operate and they remain mysterious. And you can see how when, you know, when a metaphor is closed down and it the the implications of it get too directly or too mm-hmm. flatly or reductively assigned to a real lived tragedy like the AIDS pandemic and like individuals suffering experience of HIV and AIDS, yeah, I mean, it's it's taking what is sacred, which is the openness of something like literature, and profaning it by closing down the meaning and restricting the meaning. And, I, you know, this is probably too big a stretch, but but that's also what overconfidence does, right? It's not remaining open <laughs> to what else might be. It's being so sure you mm-hmm. know what this is or what it means that you're unwilling to Be open to other possibilities, even possibilities you might not like or might not expect. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that overconfidence is is profane in the same way or that the mistake of some of our complacently overconfident characters in this chapter are directly analogous. But there's something about that. There's something about leaving, leaving mystery open, training oneself towards that which you don't know and can't be sure of that ties these things together.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Matt. We're now going to do Pardase, the four-step Jewish reading practice, and we've picked sort of a, a little section, a little longer than usual, but it's a complicated moment. And so the moment is right after Lupin is about to become a werewolf and is transforming into a werewolf, and here's the moment. Run, Sirius whispered. Run, now. But Harry couldn't run. Ron was chained to Pettigrew and Lupin. He leapt forward, but Sirius caught him round the chest and threw him back. Leave it to me. Run. Oh my God, I'm got emotional. This is very sweet and sad. Yeah. So step one is what is the intended meaning?
2: So the direct literal meaning of this passage is that Hermione has just realized sooner than everybody else, because she's the smartest in the group. That she remembers what Snape said, that Lupin had forgotten his wolf's bane, and that the moon is out, and that, that Lupin's about to transform. And then everyone is realizing that, kind of a beat too late, and taking some action. You know, that, the beginning of that sentence, when it says that Harry couldn't run, like, Harry is not physically attached to Lupin. Ron is, but right. the bond of their friendship is so strong, he might as well be. Like, that's part of their meaning that's also there, right? Yeah. Which I think speaks to how, how loyal— And committed they are to each other in this moment. And then the other thing is that, you know, Sirius takes charge and says, "I'm. you need to get out of here. I'm going to handle this.
1: Yeah, it's really like an adult stepping into an authority, which is not something that we see in these books a lot. So it's really refreshing. And I feel like I'm often really hard on Sirius. And so I love that we're calling attention to this moment, right? And he takes Hermione seriously, right? He, like, immediately believes Hermione. Yeah. And he's like, run, right? And whispers to try to get the kids away. And I like physically restrains Harry, right? Just like grabs him and pushes him out of the way. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Okay, so step two is where we track a word. Which of these words would you like to track, Matt? I'll read it one more time for you. Run, Sirius whispered, run now. But Harry couldn't run. Ron was chained to Pettigrew and Lupin. He leapt forward, but Sirius caught him around the chest and threw him back. Leave it to me. Run.
2: I mean, I feel like the word that is calling out to be interpreted is run. Run. (laughs) Run. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: So with this step, what we do is we track that word throughout, or or the idea, um, throughout the seven books.
2: I mean, the first thing I think of when I think of running is book seven. When Harry, mm-hmm. Ron, and Hermione are out, it's not clear whether they're searching for Horcruxes. I mean, they are. It is clear they're searching for Horcruxes, but they're also trying to stay away from Death Eaters. I mean, are they are they running toward or running away? It's it. They're doing both, I think, throughout a lot of that book, trying to get away from what's chasing them and also get to what they need to get to in order to to triumph over Voldemort. And um. So that's the first and most obvious example I can think of. But, I mean, there's a lot of fleeing and running in, in these books.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's even running throughout the rest of this book, right? Her- Hermione and Harry are going to be running to not be caught by themselves, right? Yeah. With this time turner. And they're going to run into the forest and run back to the castle and run on Buckbeak. And there's also the resistance to run. They're like, come on, Buckbeak. This like gentle leash tugging. They need to get out yeah. of sight. But Buckbeak needs respect and can't be encouraged to run. So there are, like, moments to run and moments to avoid running. We have in book four, Cedric and Harry running together Uh, to get to the cup. That does not go well, everyone. I mean, it's just interesting because once you're an adult as a wizard, you almost never have to run. Right? You can just, like, apparate around everywhere. That's a good point. It's only inside Hogwarts that you, like, have to be running.
2: Yeah, you're right. Is there running I mean, I feel like I'm I, in my head I see like the the battle at the ministry of magic people running around
1: Oh for sure With, over the prophecy
2: Yeah and even like in isn't it it's either I in, probably in book 7 when they No it's not I think it's the end of book book 6 when when Dumbledore dies and they're running down the steps of the tower at Hogwarts and there's a battle going on right isn't is this in the tower and they I remember somebody yeah. slipping through blood or something slipping through As they're running, they slip through something on the floor. Yeah. I mean, all very harrowing moments.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you don't get a lot of, like, playful, joyful running around.
2: It's not like skipping and running. most of the
1: running. (laughs) Yeah. It's most of the running I see, right, in my life yeah. is like kids, you know, my kids running with the dog through the woods yeah, right. and, or people running for exercise. Right. Like it's a lot of, if not joyful, like choiceful yeah, running. Right. That's right. Most adults I see running don't look happy about it.
2: but
1: yeah. They're not running <laughs> from anything. That's right. So Matt, it's time for our next step, which is drosh. And that is where... You and I talk about what meaning we would want to pull from this, or another way to think about it is if we were to preach a sermon, and this was sort of the lesson for the week, what sermon would we preach? Here's the section one more time, That Run, Sirius whispered. Run, now. But Harry couldn't run. Ron was chained to Pettigrew and Lupin. He leapt forward, but Sirius caught him around the chest and threw him back. Leave it to me. Run.
2: I mean, I think I would want to preach something about responsibility, right? That, I mean, I, I read in Sirius's action here, him kind of letting go of what he had hoped would be because he realizes he has to do something here. That thing that he hopes for is not something he can count on anymore. And there's like a, an action in front of him or a need in front of him that he has to respond to. And I think I'd, what I want to preach about responsibility is that I think we tend to think about responsibility as, like, responsibility boils down to, like, what's my fault or what I caused, I have to fix, right? Like, Sirius's responsibility in this moment doesn't have anything to do with, like, his culpability for the situation they're in. That's not why he's responsible. He's responsible because he's the one who can fix it or at least do something to fix it, right? And he takes that and accepts that responsibility so quickly and so wholly. I think that, that's what I would want to preach about. I'd want to invite people to think about what responsibility their power or their position the world gives them and what, what situations there are that they can actually make a difference in and invite them to do that.
1: And not to add to your sermon, Matt, but let me add to your sermon, Please. which is that Sirius doesn't actually even have the power to fix this. He's just doing yeah. it anyway. And like, I think that's even more beautiful, right? I feel like a lot of us stop ourselves because we're like, what I'm going to offer isn't actually going to fix it. Right. And it's like, well,
2: <laughs> you got to try anyway. Scare quotes here. Like, he's hoping he can buy some time yeah. for the children. And that's yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's enough. That's right. Yeah.
1: I'm trying to make meaning of the fact for mine, about the fact that Harry doesn't run. Yeah. Right? Like, Sirius eventually sort of leaves Harry, right? You know, what it says next is... As the werewolf reared, snapping its long jaws, Sirius disappeared from Harry's side. He had transformed, right? Like, Harry doesn't run. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. (laughs) I think I would preach on, like, is this a good or a bad thing? (laughs) Because, like, sometimes if someone offers you a reprieve, like, just freaking take it. Right? Like, just run. Run. And not just to save yourself, but also strategically, then you become one less thing Sirius has to worry about. And, you know, sometimes it's like divide and conquer, but also, you know, he stays with his friend and is only able to do what he does because he stays. And so it works out. So I don't don't know what lesson I would preach, but I know I would talk about that moment. And I think by spending time with that moment, I would maybe come down on one side or another. Well, Matt, our last step is sewed, and that's where we see if there was a secret that emerged for us. So the portion of the text, one more time, is run, Sirius whispered. Run, now. But Harry couldn't run. Ron was chained to Pettigrew and Lupin. He leapt forward, but Sirius caught him around the chest and threw him back. Leave it to me. Run. Run. I mean, the secret that's emerging for me is that I'm not sure Harry has ever heard the sentence, leave it to me, from an adult. And just like, that is something that people should offer to one another. It's something that I really admire in people when somebody is like, don't worry about it, it's on me. And yeah, I I feel like part of the reason that Harry doesn't do what Sirius said is because This is not something that people have said to him before. Don't worry about it. I will fix it. Yeah. Did a Sode emerge for you, Matthew?
2: I think the thing that's hidden here for me is the story we were told by Lupin a couple of chapters ago was that they all became animagi because they found out that they could hang out with Lupin then, that they got along as animals, right? But there's something here that Sirius knows right away that he needs to fight off Lupin and that he's gonna fight him off as a dog. There's a history of contest and conflict also somewhere in this. I mm. think. Like he knows he knows something about their fighting. Right? He knows something about them fighting as animals, I think. So I yeah, so I don't I don't really know what's there. I, that's because it's a secret. But I think that there is some hidden history here. There's more to the story than we were told by Lupin. He tells a very sunny version of the story. We were all, we were being reckless, but we were all happy together, running free as carefree animals together. When actually, I think there's there's something else going on.
1: I really love that Sode.
2: Oh, good. Thank you. Vanessa, thank you for Pardes today. I, you know I'm not comfortable with Sode, but I feel like I developed a new relationship to Sode. I'm excited about our next Sode.
1: Oh, I'm so happy for you. Thanks for doing this with me. I love parties. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimald Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
2: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? And now we have a voice memo from Nicoletta.
3: Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I am Nikki. I use she-they pronouns, and I have a blessing for you today. I recently moved and had to sort through all of my school stuff to get rid of some, because there is not enough room in my new apartment. And I am a very sentimental person. I keep everything, and I have a hard time letting go. And... There were so many short stories that I had written in fourth grade and fifth grade and throughout middle school that were beautifully annotated by the teachers that I had handed them in for, um, who scribbled just encouragement into the margins and fostered my love of writing back when it was still in its infancy and it got me thinking about the impact that especially English teachers have I'm not a native English speaker in case that wasn't clear by my weird accent um but I started writing poems in English in sixth grade because I was that kid um And there was this one teacher who I've actually kept in touch with who um, has always supported any artistic endeavor that I've pursued. Um, And it just reminded me of Neville and his journey of maybe not being academically inclined in the way that is demanded of him and how Barty Crouch as Moody sees the potential in him and gives him the tools and the encouragement to really blossom after he learns from Sprout how um, how good Neville actually is if given the chance and how Sprout also continues to bring Neville's talents to the surface. And so I want to share a blessing for Barty Crouch Jr. of all people and Mrs. Sprout because they changed Neville's life. He becomes a professor for Herbology. And I think that is just beautiful and just shows us that if there is such a thing as pedagogy actually happening, who knew it would have positive effects on the students?
2: Thank you, Nikki, for this voice memo. First of all, I just like to say that I think your accent is excellent. Nothing weird about it. As soon as you started speaking, I was filled with joy because but because it's great. And I also, I love your example from the books and also your own example of all the, all the marginalia in the short stories you wrote as a child. I think one of the things that's happened is I've transitioned from the kind of person who submits papers to professors for grading and who is the person who grades the papers is that I think when I was writing papers, I thought of the paper as like a discrete entity that I produced and submitted for evaluation. And I also think just becoming a professor and doing a lot of writing, submitting manuscripts to folks and getting feedback, I'm realizing more and more that writing is not where we create something pristine and then deliver it to someone for evaluation. It's actually a conversation that you have to, there has to be back and forth. And, and one of the great things about good feedback from good teachers, and I've been lucky enough to have a couple is you learn so much, right? You stop thinking about your writing as an end product and you start thinking about it as a process of your own thinking and a process of being in conversation. And I'm, I'm really happy that you were able to revisit some of those moments from your own writing life, even if there was your early writing life, and that that was able to help you discern, you know, how meaningful that sort of feedback, that sort of conversational or dialogical pedagogy could be for a a student we all like, like Neville. So thanks for your story and thanks for your your blessings.
1: Yes, Nikki, thank you so much for that great voicemail. Anything that reminds us that Neville's awesome and that English teachers are the best makes me happy. And the fact that you did both of those things in one, not to grade you, but A plus.
2: Now it's time for us to honor those members of our community who have been loved and lost. Helen Beaven, 84, a stubborn cat lover. Jana Peden, 62, a beloved mother, friend, and animal lover. Sam Osterberg, 85, who loved Airwolf and Prince Spaghetti. Ezrith Wolf, 13, in love with the earth. Joey Nail, 63, a father, wanderer, and master nicknamer. Betty Freeborn, 98, a devoted mother and grandmother, a world traveler. Joan Mills, 79, a grandmother, music lover, who was full of unconditional love. Laura Martinez, 55, an aunt to all and an art supporter. Mary O'Brien, 90, a godmother, great aunt, an avid Duncan fan. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week?
1: I am blessing Sirius Black. I'm blessing him for this moment when the dementors are descending upon him. What it says in the text is this. The yelping stopped abruptly. As they reached the lakeshore, they saw why. Sirius had turned back into a man. He was crouched on all fours, his hands over his head. No, he moaned. No, please. And I want to bless him for this moment just like The indignity of it, right? Like him being on all fours and like begging from a creature that like clearly you can't reason with. A dementor isn't going to change his mind because you ask politely. I just find this moment really tragic. And we all have moments in our lives when we feel as though all we can do is yell, no, please. I just want to bless everyone (laughs) because we all have moments like that. And that is a difficult human moment and I want to bless Sirius specifically. What about you, Matt?
2: Yeah, I think speaking of indignity. <laughs> I want to bless I want to bless Snape. Snape has not comported himself well in our previous chapter, so there are no excuses here for Snape necessarily. But the, just the carelessness with which they treat his his immobile and unconscious body is kind of gross. Right? They, his head bonks against the the ceiling and they don't really care and And I know they have a lot of animosity towards him, Sirius and Lupin in general. It's a telling detail in this chapter. And it's important to me because I give Snape a hard time because I feel like he's holding on to these old grudges. He's holding on to these old things that happened so many years ago. And how dare he, like, build his old psychology around these these old things? Why hasn't he processed these things better? Why hasn't he dealt with them better? But the dynamics are still there. Like, they wouldn't treat his body this way. If there's some of that dynamic weren't still persisting, if they weren't still dismissing him, still treating him with disrespect and maligning him in a really, like, direct and careless way, reckless way, hurtful way here. So, so I want to I bless Snape because he's mistreated in this chapter. Next week, we're going to read Book 3, Chapter 21, Hermione's Secret, through the theme of anticipation.
1: Ooh. A reminder that if you are interested in transcribing episodes of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at Harry Potter Sacred Text at NotSorryProductions.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are edited and produced by A.J. Uramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast.
2: Thanks this week to Nikki for her voicemail, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Takael, Stephanie Balsell, Hannah Rehak, and all of you who sent in the names of your loved ones this week. It's the in-between chapters. I'm like the opposite of Goldilocks.
1: (laughs) In at least that one way.
2: Are there other ways? I think that's the only way I'm the opposite of Goldilocks.
1: (laughs) No, you would want to live with the bears.
2: That's right. Oh, that's right. There's another way. Yep.